This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to this Intelligence Squared podcast. I'm Farah Jassat. And before we go to this week's episode, I want to share some exciting news. We've recently launched Intelligence Squared Plus, a new digital subscription service for online events. If you're a fan of our podcast, you can now listen to them while they're being recorded. You can join our most high profile speakers in live interactive online events and ask your questions directly to them from the comfort of your home. We have an amazing lineup over the coming months, from authors like Margaret Atwood and Salman Rushdie to big thinkers like the New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman and the economist Thomas Piketty, as well as the big names in arts and culture like the singer Paloma Faith, chef Yotam Atalengi and podcaster Elizabeth Day. If you still need convincing, here's a message from our friend Stephen Fry. Hello, I'm Stephen Fry and I'd like to encourage you to subscribe to Intelligence Squared Plus, the new and very modestly priced digital subscription service from my friends at Intelligence Squared. You would, I think, be hard-pressed to find an organisation that better presents and supports debate, discussion and civilised, rigorous conversation, perhaps never before has the world needed all of these things quite so keenly. Perhaps you'll be kind enough to support Intelligence Squared by signing up for this service. It only costs £5 a month. Do consider it. Thank you very much indeed. So there you have it. If you're interested, please do click on the link in our podcast description or go to intelligencesquared.com. We hope to see you virtually at one of our online events very soon. And I'll now hand over to my colleague Connor to tell us more about this week's episode. Thank you, Farah, and hello, podcast listeners. This week, we have Professor Will Davis, author of Nervous States, how feeling took over the world. And he spoke to Carl Miller about the history of ideas and how despite facts and data coming to rule more and more of our lives, at the same time, feelings and emotion are coming to rule more and more of our behaviour and how we make decisions. So it's a really interesting episode and we hope you enjoy it. Hello, I'm Carl Miller, Research Director of the Centre for the Analysis of Social Media at the Think Tank Demos. Welcome to this episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast. 
You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and online events at intelligencesquared.com. I'm here with Will Davies. Will, hello. Hi. Right, so let me begin by quoting you, Will, and asking you to explain it. So at the beginning of Nervous States, you say that in the murky space between mind and body, between war and peace, lie nervous states. Individuals and governments living in a state of constant and heightened alertness, relying increasingly on feeling rather than fact. Explain to the explain to the reader kind of what that thesis really means, and and perhaps why it kind of matters now more than ever. Sure. Well, I think it's interesting just to think a little bit about the distinction between feelings and facts, which have been has been such a a matter of discussion and concern over the last few years in relation to the perce- perception that democracies are no longer being led by evidence or by expertise and are increasingly uh, becoming uh, driven by emotional reactions and post-truth and this kind of thing. And in a way, uh, the idea of nervousness, I think, is an interesting one because the nervous system of the body is uh, a, a very important source of knowledge about the world, but it tells us things that are going on right this moment. It tells us when we're hungry. It tells us when we have we are afraid. It tells us how we feel about the situations we're in, whether we're happy, whether we're unhappy, and so on. But the nervous system is in some ways a, a real-time information feedback system. It uh, conveys crucial information about our present circumstances. And to the same extent, it is something that allows us to take very rapid responses to situations that might be dangerous. It makes us alert to where we are in the present moment, in the present time. And in that sense, you hear of people talking about the you know fight or flight emotions and the the ways in which people uh, move into a state of heightened nervousness when they feel afraid, and there are particular um, syndromes such as post traumatic stress disorder and this sort of thing that actually push people into that state of mind and, and state of feeling much of the time. Now, a fact, by contrast, is something which is an established representation of things that have already happened in the past. So, when we talk about fact checking. What we're talking about is the ability to collect various forms of data about what might or might not have happened and then to assess them in a more considered and slower fashion to check multiple sources. And this is how science advances, is that people collect various data through their nervous systems, through their senses. They watch things, they feel things with the help of things like thermometers and this sort of thing. But in order for them to be established as facts, it requires a certain amount of consideration, deliberation, peer review which is necessarily a slow process. So the at the centre of my book is a contrast between a way of seeing the world which is organised around reflection on things that have happened in the past, which is where we get facts from and which back in the analogue world was something that newspapers and broadcasters and scientists and so on were able to have a certain amount of time in order to produce and a kind of real-time orientation towards the world that our nervous systems are evolutionarily developed in order to provide us with but which digital media and the fact that we now carry around these real-time communication devices in our pockets the whole time means that as a society and not just as individuals we've developed a, a greater and greater capacity to feel what is going on at the moment but which in some ways has overwhelmed our ability to build up these slower more cautious uh, pictures of the world that are, are, are often referred to as facts. Do, do you think that your book in a way 
almost has a kind of pang of nostalgia to it, Will. I mean, I certainly kind of got the sense of this kind of grand historical arc that you you, you, mm. you paint through the chapters, which largely tells a story of a decline of, of, of an age of reason and enlightenment and its achievements. Mm. And instead, almost like the return to a to a kind of pre-enlightenment age where things like feelings mm. and instincts and, and emotions are much more important than they used to be. I mean, people read it in different ways. And I think a lot of people, for understandable reasons, probably would see the book in the way that you've 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 described in the sense of I mean it tries to present a particular moment in the late 17th century where via the work of people like Thomas Hobbes and uh, Robert Boyle and uh, the pioneers of, of of scientific expertise people like William Petty who developed some of the first efforts to try and describe society stati- with statistics just tries to tr- understand that this was a moment which wasn't just about trying to assert that rationality is better than irrationality although these people did believe that it wasn't simply a a sort of Richard Dawkins view which is that I'm right and you're wrong but that many of these people were also in the job of trying to come up with a new basis for political consensus that part of the achievement of the power of things like statistics in society is or was the ability to say, look, here is a a picture of the world that we can agree on, even if we disagree about religious questions, moral questions, matters of fundamental questions of of, of good and evil and uh, and of of cultural tastes and identities and so on. But what this was an effort to do at a particular moment in history was to take certain questions outside of the realm of theological and philosophical and political disagreement. Now, of course, the, the, the negative face of that project is, well, I mean, some of the worst manifestations of that project were those of vicious colonialism and the use of things like statistics to dominate foreign territories and foreign people and so on. In a more contemporary uh, scenario would be the way in which the, the vision of a kind of distant undemocratic technocracy as say the European Central Bank might sometimes be perceived over the course of the Eurozone crisis or for that matter how Washington DC is often perceived by many people who are hostile to to government in the United States that these are technocratic ventures that are not democratic and that they are also arrogant that many of the kind of culture wars that have split western societies down the middle over the last decade or so have often come to treat experts and statistics as as being sort of arrogant, distant, unaccountable. And you see this now in the context of coronavirus, that there are people who, you know, like stop talking about statistics and start focusing on, um, you know, the wonderful work that that, that particular, you know, that Boris Johnson going into hospital and his baby and this sort of thing. You know, this is what the nation should be pulling around and not talking in terms of aggregates and quantities and so on. One thing that I suppose I just wanted to, get people to at least try and understand is that we if we you know we 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 lose some of that 17th century project at our peril because once we start to disagree about the very nature of things like facts it's very difficult to know on what basis we can build agreements at all the other thing actually just to go back to your question one of the things i wanted to try and highlight in the book is that the part of the kind of romantic rebellion against that liberal possibly technocratic project actually came significantly later in history and i go to the period in the period of the napoleonic wars in the early 19th century the birth of nationalism the birth of a kind of heroic vision of modern leadership as embodied in napoleon and the celebration of a kind of warlike leader that i talk about the work of karl von clausewitz the 
the Prussian writer on war, but who saw Napoleon as exhibiting a new form of secular modern leadership where, where political authority no longer came from the capacity to establish the ground rules of society, as it was for someone like Hobbes in the 17th century, and became much more about the capacity to mobilise people, to move fast, to be bold, to deploy courage, but also to deploy misinformation and to con people into getting into the line behind you. These are their own types of skills. And that is, I think, quite uh, you know most people would recognize the aspects of that that napoleonic project where effectively the capacity to move fast and break things as used to be the facebook slogan and the capacity to mobilize people around a project has become an increasingly powerful model of political authority and leadership in today's world and in some ways that 17th century project of establishing ground rules and facts and and the basis the consensus a reality within which disagreements take place has, has 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 come under great challenge in a way that many people didn't expect only 20 years ago. I I do want to jump back to the 17th century in a moment because I think it's enormously overlooked part of history which this book does such a good job of foregrounding for us and 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 identifying the many things that we owe it but before we do let's just dwell for a moment longer in the present and obviously a present where we are each sat in our different living rooms and uh, under lockdown. How do you interpret the pandemic using the ideas of your book? Because, I mean, from my perspective, it looks like, on the one hand, this has been a kind of thundering justification of your of your basic thesis of, of the rise of feeling, you know, with conspiracy theories and hatred of experts and numerology and miracle cures kind of circulating around. It really does feel like we've lurched back into the dark ages. But on the other hand, there also seems to be... Um, right now, a, a kind of moment almost of science fiction where kind of epidemiological models and um, public health technocrats have probably gained more decision making power than certainly I can ever think of at any other point in history. Sure. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, these are two different visions of what a collective is, I suppose. So to put it in the kind of uh, polarities that I, I build up in the book, you've got the kind of 17th century vision of what a collective is, which is a kind of aggregate of people that make up a kind of population. And for those people who follow those graphs produced by the likes of the Financial Times and listen to these epidemiologists and look at these comparisons between Italy and South Korea and so on, they are living within the legacy of that 17th century project. They are looking at these trends in statistical terms, they're looking at averages, they're looking at society as something that has a kind of fact based element to it, that we can look at the problem of the pandemic via a set of quantitative facts which can be checked and which, you know, the false ones will come to light and get eliminated and so on. And that is the, the scientific project and the, the, the what then became the Enlightenment project. As you say, there is also the second uh, ideal of how politics works, which is that it's much more about mobilising people emotionally um, and also doesn't slow down sufficiently in order for falsehoods to be uh, uh, identified and eliminated. And indeed, those people who try to perform some of that slowing down by saying, hang on a second, let's just check this for a second, are often considered to be disloyal, often considered to be um, uh, you know, enemies of the people, if to put it in the most sort of extreme populist terms. Um, and of course, the technologies that are now at our fingertips, literally, um, for circulating misinformation and so on, are really supporting that second quasi-nationalist, 
rather paranoid project. WhatsApp is one of the main problems at the heart of all of this because WhatsApp has these particular functionalities that allow people to circulate conspiracy theories at a huge speed. And often, and often I think it's worth remembering about some of the conspiracy theories that are circulating. And I know that you've done work on, on this yourself, looking at conspiracy theories. But one of the, the many of the conspiracy theories that circulate in about coronavirus via WhatsApp and Facebook groups and so on are not done out of hostility. They're done out of concern. I mean, people saying, you know, I've, I've heard this recording. It's from an Italian doctor. It's saying, you know, you mustn't eat Rice Krispies or something. You know, they're, they're sort of, it doesn't really matter what it is, but people share these things not because they want to destabilise society and they want to do harm. The person who invents them, of course, is, is doing it out of, out of extreme mischief. But the way these things spread is because people feel that only through pulling together and some form of community and national solidarity are we going to get through this. But also that government alone is not to be trusted adequately, that what government is telling you is probably not the full story. And of course, to some extent, that's true. The government probably doesn't tell you the full story about what they know, because partly because they're not sure that it's 100% true themselves and so on. So you can see these two things are in, are in a certain amount of tension with one another. The, the institutions that actually in my book, I talk about institutions that are in some ways at the absolute epicentre. And this the book was you know, written in, in, in 2017-18, so I didn't have any clue about uh, COVID-19 or anything like that. But I talk a bit about how the, the, the institution that is in some ways sits between these two different poles of, of political authority are health services. Because actually, if you look at the types of experts that retain the highest levels of trust in society across the world, it's doctors and nurses. And if you look at the types of scientific fact that retain, a, you know, a sort of visceral concern for people, it is medical knowledge that medical science is, 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 is people might be sceptical about things like climate change, they might be sceptical about things like, you know, economic GDP growth and unemployment figures and so on. But medicine has a, a, a proximity and an intimacy to people that means that it has a very obvious capacity to care for them, to help them, to look after their loved ones and so on. And I think that the thing to watch is this pandemic develops is that uh, is, is to what extent will healthcare be seized by those who stand on the side of statistics, reason, for want of a better word, um, concern for the aggregate, um, for those people who are thinking a bit about uh, death rates and poverty levels and how we all get through this collectively? And to what extent will it be seized by those who actually want to sort of find a new basis for a kind of a kind of nationalism, a kind of, you know, starting building up symbols of, you know, some uh, glorious, rather primeval identity which is often formed over time, over history, that, that that project has often been built up through um, large levels of, of, of mortality, frankly, is that, you know, that we got through this by being British, through clinging to, by standing up for each other. Uh, and I think that the National Health Service, although it's often been associated with the left, does have great potential to become a, a totem of the right. Um, and my final observation in relation to, to COVID-19 and, and, and your question is I think what we saw is that as the, the crisis broke, uh, swept through British society in particular, anyway, I mean, it's different timings in different countries, but there was a there was about a month and it was roughly the month of March when it seemed obvious that the experts, epidemiologists, statistics, you know, that the whole culture war of Brexit and, and nationalism and, and Boris Johnson and so on was clearly now over. People were saying, well, of course, their attacks on the BBC and their attacks on the universities are going to have to end. But by mid-March, a lot of that 
sort of Brexity populist small n nationalist project had been resuscitated and suddenly it was about well you know the financial times is you know i'm not sure that you know we need to be thinking about this in in you know all these statisticians and 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 liberals who want to try and make britain look bad whose side are they really on that question which would have seemed unthinkable i think uh, in the middle of march was was being was being circulated by the middle of April. And already, you know, the BBC put out a panorama programme earlier in the week we're we're speaking, which was extremely damning of the government's approach, in particular to protective personal equipment in the NHS. And immediately a lot of the right-wing papers started turning on the BBC for trying to undermine the government. Do do you think that in, you know, both ends of your kind of polarity that you draw, you know, facts on one side and feelings on the other, kind of offer... A different kind of solace to people and and different kinds of people are kind of disappearing to either end you know some are kind of becoming armchair epidemiologists and others are just kind of disappearing Mm. into kind of 5g conspiracy theories and that you know almost Mm. the way of characterizing what's happening right now is is of these two worlds which you describe in the book you know the kind of 17th century world of enlightenment and facts and objectivity and you know experimental evidence and the world of feeling and 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 conspiracy theories and you know entirely subjective ideas about how to understand the world are kind of almost struggling with each other struggling with each other for mm. kind of control of of the age of corona yes i suppose that's right i mean i think that the the the, the difficulty is that politically anyway is that these two different I mean, I, in, the, in the book, I tell these two kind of origin stories of a of an origin of a of an effort to try and turn the world into into facts and consensus narratives, which originates after the religious wars of the 17th century, and then a new origin story that begins after the the with the Napoleonic Wars after the French Revolution, which is about trying to create these kind of communities of feeling. And I mean, both in some ways speak to different aspects of the human condition. It would be almost kind of pathological to only be concerned with the former to 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 go through life only ever trying to establish things in a purely kind of factual fashion i mean if you went to a if you went to a, a party and every time someone told you a story or spoke you would have said i've just got to go and check for some evidence on that that would be a sort of very strange way to carry on and one of the dangers of course something like whatsapp is that in some ways the norms of whatsapp are much closer to to um to to, to that sort of party situation and, and things get forwarded but you know you don't go and say well i don't think that's true sort of um uh, and equally, um, it would be um, rather dangerous to live purely in a world of of being led by what appears to to, to feel right at that moment and to to go with go with one's peers the entire time. Though, of course, I think there are particular social media platforms that inculcate that. I think one of the things I sort of you know observe in the book is if you want to think about what why something like Twitter is 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 at least problematic for for fact based discourse. I mean, the very fact that Twitter is organised around the terms. Who, who do you follow? Uh, I mean, already this gives you a kind of sense of a of a slightly kind of militarist legacy that this is a bit, this is a platform that is based around following people. And I mean, scientists don't don't appear in peer review. You're not following people. I mean, so there's a sort of interesting issue there. But I think you're right that I think I think when it comes to sort of existential comfort of the sort that you're asking about, I think the latter offers more of it because it it, it allows one to be surrounded by. Um, people who feel the same as you and that this is a great a great comfort it's something that makes people feel less alone I think that the the former narrative the narrative that that gives you graphs and statistics and objective portraits of the world doesn't necessarily provide people with very much of a sense of existential security 
unless I suppose, and this is where many of the cultural and political divides in, in, in Western democracies come from, if you are someone who has a, a university degree, particularly if it's in one of those sorts of fields, then it connects with your a sense of identity and your your world view and your and that of your peers who also have university degrees much more closely and we know from all of the ways in which voting divides have happened in the United States and across Europe uh, over the last five years, with all of these explosions of, of, of Brexit and Trump and so on, that whether one has a university degree is one of the main determinants of where one stands on on these questions of of, of populism and I think that the other thing which, of course, we know about what's happened in Western democracies since World War Two is that the number of people going to university has risen from somewhere around about 5%, as it was in the 1950s, up to approaching 50% in the in the present day, in the particularly in the English-speaking world, which then brings in all of these generational effects, that one of the reasons why older people are more likely to support things like Brexit and, and so on is that there are more older people, you know, fewer older people went to university. So... The, the, I think that graduate education, higher education, in some ways maps quite closely onto a sense of comfort with the worldview of the Financial Times, the Office for National Statistics, and for that matter, the British Treasury. Now, that's not to say that that is the superior worldview. I think that both worldviews have something to offer because human beings cannot live without the sense of, of security and the sense of comfort of having narratives that make sense to them and make sense to their friends and to their families and to their loved ones. But I think that we need to bring in bear in mind the fact that there isn't anything obviously or intuitively trustworthy about things like statistics and, and, and so on. And I mean, this also plays into things like anti-vax movements and so on, which I think anti-vax people who develop scepticism about vaccinations are people who also feel utterly abandoned by governments who feel alienated from the economy, who have lost trust in the mainstream media and so on. And there is a kind of broader kind of basket of forms of exclusion and alienation that go together with that feeling of distrust in, in, in expertise and science. Well, well, drag us for a moment back into the 17th century so we can understand a little more about, about this, this world that, that seems to be under increasing attack now. What were their kind of contemporary notions, I suppose, of either truth or expertise or, or governance that were so important? Sure. Well, so there, there are a couple of people that I discuss at length, and one is, is Thomas Hobbes, who is, I suppose, really often seen as the founder of modern political philosophy. And Hobbes was an English philosopher who was living during one of the most violent and divided periods in Europe's history, which was that of the Thirty Years' War on the continent and then the English Civil War. And he was someone who believed came to believe partly through those experiences that the creation of peace was the ultimate purpose of the state and that one of the reasons why politics had become so bloody and so divided was that at the time the ideas of of, of political authorities were completely entangled in matters of religious authority. So within moral and political philosophy, uh, there was still huge influence of, of scholastic philosophy that was influenced by Aristotle, which believed that questions of truth and questions of goodness and questions of justice were all entangled with each other, that uh, there was, uh, in order to establish a good society, that involved establishing good moral principles above bad moral principles. And 
Hobbes was a he was a modern thinker. He wanted to eliminate metaphysical and religious questions of some ultimate purpose of human life and ultimate God's ultimate purpose for people. He wanted to get those questions out of politics. He wanted to found politics on questions that could be answered with the use of reason in the same way that people like uh, Francis Bacon and the, the pioneers of the scientific revolution of the early 17th century were doing for the study of the natural world. He believed that politics could be, uh, the problems of politics could be addressed with the same level of certainty and the same level of rationality as the likes of Bacon were uh, applying to the natural world. And he did that by saying, well, what are human beings like as a species? And he noticed that human beings have a tendency to be afraid of each other. And the reason they have a tendency to be afraid of each other is that they have no real basis on which to trust one another because you might say you're a nice person, but I have no real way of knowing that and therefore there's a chance you might harm me and therefore it becomes entirely rational for me to harm you. And that, that this is where war comes from, is that basically people's words don't really count for anything and eventually they end up attacking each other. So Hobbes believed that the purpose of the state was to establish the ground rules of society that everybody had to live by uh, and to th- you have an overwhelming capacity for violence uh, which could could be deployed against people who broke rules. So that the state becomes both extremely terrifying, but also establishes, provides the only basis for peace in society. And once you have peace in society, then you can have commerce, you can have science, you can have progress. But until questions of right and wrong and the possibility of violence within society are taken out of the hands of ordinary people, then you're not going to get any of the forms of progress that Hobbes hoped could then follow. So Ultimately, consensus became the main uh, or establishing a basis for peace that was not going to get disrupted by religious disputes and moral disputes and and matters of uh, questions of of fear and counterattack was what Hobbes was was interested in. But it wasn't long after that. I mean, Hobbes was writing in the 1650s. Leviathan was published in 1651, his great work. But over the 1660s, 1670s, 1680s, you also got the birth of these scientific societies and these early forms of expertise led by people like Robert Boyle and William Petty, who I mentioned earlier, who were interested in developing, again, taking some of the techniques that were developing, had had, um, delivered great uh, advances in areas such as astronomy and applying them to the study of populations of diseases of studying uh, mechanics in the in, in the laboratory and so on. And within those communities, they place huge emphasis on on mathematical logic but also on observation that if people agreed to abide by certain rules of 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 observation and reporting and and this is what we would later become recognized as scientific discipline it could be possible to establish the facts of how society works of how nature works and also if you think of what later became newspapers to establish facts of, of what had happened, of, of who had said what, to laying things to what we now would call the public record. Uh, and that once things have been laid on record, whether it be in a scientific journal, in a, uh, in a, um, in a, in a, uh, in a, in a, um, scientific report, in a statistical document, or in a, in a set of, accounts or whatever it might be, of public accounts, that once things have been laid on the public record, they become beyond dispute. And because they become beyond dispute, that becomes a basis on which people can agree on things, even if they want to disagree about other things. Well, from the world of the Leviathan and and, and, and Hobbes and the Royal Society, the next stop on our journey is going to be the world of the rise of feeling and emotion. But uh, before mm. we go there, it's time for a quick break. Hello, I'm Farah Jassat from Intelligence Squared. I hope you're enjoying this episode. Before we get back to it, I'd like to encourage you, 
our loyal podcast listeners to subscribe to Intelligence Squared Plus, our new subscription service for online interactive events. Intelligence Squared brings together the world's top thought leaders and opinion formers, from Margaret Atwood, Thomas Friedman and Salman Rushdie, to Mehdi Hassan, Bernadine Evaristo and Elizabeth Day. Join us and take part in these exclusive online events where you can ask your questions directly to our speakers. It's only £5 a month and you get the first month completely free. Please do consider supporting Intelligence Squared and subscribe now by clicking the link in our podcast description. Thank you so much. Okay, so Will, from the world of the 17th century and Leviathan and the kind of many enlightenment achievements which which were created, when did the story begin to change? When did we start to see the kind of rise of this this kind of almost counterculture of nostalgia and resentment and anger and and fear and feeling well uh, the the point when i pick up a, a a different tradition is in the aftermath of the french revolution i think that periods of great disruption and violence and and conflict often breed something new so if we think of Hobbes's work and the optimism of the the scientific pioneers in the late 17th century as coming with the resolution of the Thirty Years' War and the English Civil War and those periods of, of, of deep religious conflict, you then get with the French Revolution of 1789 uh, and then the rise of Napoleon a few years later and the Napoleonic Wars, you get this uh, a different way of understanding what society is. So if for Hobbes, society was something which needed pacifying, it needed turning into uh, something that could be governed, uh, that it could then, with the help of things like statistics, be turned into something that was a to a scientific and, and factual analysis. What the French Revolution suggested and what Napoleon was then able to channel was that a people can become mobilised by a shared passion, that, um, that there is an aspect of what we now would recognise as a nation uh, which uh, has a force within it which isn't simply the force of the state or the force of government, but that actually derives from uh, a, a set of shared sensibilities, shared emotions, shared identities, uh, and also shared resentments, shared sense of enemy. Now, this is something that the French Revolution writ very large because it was something that uh, mobilised a, a very large number of people. But the revolutionary uh, armies that came out of the French Revolution were able to channel a lot of that popular sentiment, popular discontent and, and a sense of, of, of collectivism that had never been witnessed before in, in amongst European armies. And the, the thinker who I read and turn to to try and understand what, what this meant in terms of thinking a bit about political leadership and political authority is Karl von Clausewitz. And Clausewitz, who was a soldier himself, who was fought in Prussian armies that were defeated by Napoleon in the early 19th century. And Clausewitz was absolutely stunned by what he saw in the French armies and in Napoleon's leadership, because at one point he said it was as if the force of an entire people had descended on us, because until this point, armies were made up either of these mercenaries who were uh, often sort of bands of kind of undesirables and and low lives and so on, who got um, paid to join a particular army, or you had particularly in Prussia, a rather kind of aristocratic vision of being a soldier was something that you were kind of trained to do and was very specialist, but also rather sort of traditionalist question of nobility and something that you were trained in. What 
Clausewitz was stunned by what he thought really represented the future, not just of warfare, but also the future of nations, was the way in which the Napoleonic armies mobilised vast numbers of people who seemed to be share a certain passion um, because the, the French Revolution had unleashed something in a very large population that had never been seen before. And in that sense, it was a kind of... Uh, the mobilization of an entire people uh, and the birth of, a, of, of, of nationalism had a kind of quasi-democracy about it because it brought people into a shared political project in a way that if you think of living as just a member of society as a one number in a vast number of statistics, that doesn't give you a purpose in life. It doesn't give you a, a meaning in life and it doesn't also give you anything to feel strongly about. What nations offer is something to, to, to care about to, and also the feeling that someone else cares about you, that you are part of a collective and you have a shared purpose and your leader and of course this can tip into something demagogic or even fascistic is someone who will take you to the destination that you as a people need to go in and the other thing which I think was interesting about what happened with the in the, during the Napoleonic Wars that, that built on the, the spirit of the French Revolution was that it didn't just mobilise people in armies, it also mobilised civilians. So it involved the mobilisation of, uh, of the economy, the mobilisation of, of women to work and uh, the mobilisation of, of you know, horses from non-military areas of society were put to work in the service of, of a war effort. And what it demonstrated in ways that we now, you know, in, in the UK, we pe many people are still nostalgic for World War Two because it was a time when you know, every, the entire people kind of pulled together. But what those that that period at the beginning of the nineteenth century gave a glimpse of was how nations would start to imagine themselves with the help of things like myth, also with the help of propaganda, but also by breeding resentments towards those who were accused of having unfairly demeaned them or or, or, or won victories over them in the past. And very often nations make far greater uh, get get far more capital out of telling stories about past defeats than they do about past victories a lot of the time and you think of you know the 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 importance of dunkirk in the in the in the british imaginary but also you know the development of different forms of nationalism over the over the 19th century often the stories and the the symbols and the the the, the tales that are most important in the development of nationalism are also about glorious defeats as well as glorious victories because they get a sense of of well in this time we must come together and, and somehow kind of avenge that and so that's really what i was interested in at that particular period and will take us take us forwards now into into the contemporary world. How did the kind of genie of nationalism that that Napoleon and others awoke? How did that kind of wrap itself around the realities of technology and 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 an age of data and information and even information warfare? Well, I think there's a couple of things. I mean, one is so I think I suppose there are two questions, and and this was something which came. I initially started thinking about this specifically in the aftermath of Brexit, which is. There are two questions that come out of all of what I'm saying. One is, why does the liberal technocratic project go into decline? And the second is, why does that um, emotive real-time project go into the ascendancy? And I think they've, they've both been in, 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 in sort of in, in various balances over the last 200 years at different points and for different reasons. But I think something happened uh, not, I suppose, not in an unprecedented way in the sense that it's not that we had... 350 years of, of, of reason and facts and then suddenly the kind of you know the bogeymen suddenly appeared out of nowhere in, in sort of certainly not in 2016 and not even in at any point because I think part of what I'm trying to say particularly in relation to that origin of nationalism is that these things have been in attention with each other uh, as long as they've both coexisted but I think that what happened in terms of the 
decline of the liberal technocratic project was partly, a, a, I suppose, with the rise of of, of, of globalisation and of a particular vision of the economy that took hold over the 1990s and onwards was that many of the key questions of economics were seen as uh, as, as being uh, uh, as firmly established as matters of natural scientific fact. And that with the global financial crisis of 2008 and the aftermath, particularly in Europe, where effectively there was really very little capacity to push back democratically or politically against the decisions of the European Central Bank and the European Commission from 2009-10 onwards. And that wrought terrible harm across particularly Mediterranean Europe. And that's where we've seen some of the strongest populist pushbacks from the likes of Salvini and and, and, and left populism of, of, of Podemos in Spain and as well. So I think there was a, a, a crisis of technocratic reason that was I suppose, brewing for for 20 years, but which really accelerated after 2008. But I suppose more pertinently to your question is, where does this this capacity for real-time sentiment, what what gives it, how does it accelerate to, to the extent that it did in the 21st century? And I think that one way to, to approach this, and as I do in the book, is to think about what computers are and what, what computer networks are, and that they were not developed in their origins in order to provide uh, factual depictions of the world of the sort that might be the basis for social peace in to go back to that 17th century tradition they're not like the kinds of they 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 were not born in order to produce things the like of which the office for national statistics produces when it comes up with unemployment data or when it comes up with a a a particular picture of demography or or regional inequality they were born as real-time sensory devices and real-time computational devices Originally, some of the earliest computers were built to aid with uh, with the aiming of anti-aircraft guns during World War Two. The birth of, or the, the widely understood birth of the internet, going back to DARPANET in the early nineteen sixties, was created in order to uh, sense and respond to and anticipate incoming nuclear attacks from the Soviet Union. So, in that sense, computers and the networks that have been built between computers have since their origins been born out of a spirit of both paranoia and also or out of a spirit of the need to sense and respond to things as quickly as possible. And in that sense, they are devices that in some ways have a, a, a genealogy that if you were to trace it back, goes back to that period of the Napoleonic Wars. And as I point out in the book, Napoleon had his own ways of dealing with the the, the problem of of real-time information during times of war. He built various sorts of now obviously very primitive types of telecom networks to try and convey information quickly over large distances. But he also was masterful at sending out information, misinformation, in order both to raise the morale of his own troops, but also to harm the morale of enemy troops. So Napoleon understood that warfare is fought partly through how different forms of information and misinformation are distributed and not distributed and kept secret and so on. So part of my argument in the book is that computers, the internet and what later became social media in some ways have more of a legacy in the tradition of military intelligence gathering and distribution and in the strategy, strategic problem of needing to undermine and second guess and anticipate and outwit an enemy than they do in the tradition of trying to build up a consensual, peaceful, uh, objective portrait of the world. And in that sense, the, the extent to which we are now encountering the world via 
the screens of our phones, the platforms of Twitter, Facebook, WhatsApp and YouTube and so on, means that we have been, although we are not living currently in a state of war, the aspects of a warlike mentality and precisely the mentality that someone like Thomas Hobbes was trying to eliminate from modern society, that aspects of that mentality, aspects of that real-time reactivity and that uh, reliance on feeling, reliance on sentiment, and also the tactics of trolling and misinformation and, and, and trying to disrupt others and so on, have entered civil society in a way that was simply technologically not feasible during the 1980s. Back, back to the present day and even now looking to the future, do you think the pandemic will kind of could represent almost some form of reckoning for these two worlds and their collision. Because, I mean, the, the book paints this really kind of vivid portrait of almost these two, you know, serpents wrapped around each other, at least that's how I imagine them, you know, with their, each one with their own traditions and heroes and villains and languages and achievements and, uh, you know, and, and, and internal lives almost. And, and in this current moment, it kind of feels like both of them are, are almost reaching ascendancy at the same moment. Both more people distrustful of experts and yet experts never more powerful. Both a leviathan that is interfering more with our lives than it has in living memory and also one that, that seems to be under attack by more people. You know, both people turning back to the mainstream media and also uh, worlds of fringe medicine and, and fringe journalism exploding. Is this a kind of singular moment, you think, when it almost feels like these two worlds, you know, are, are, are actually kind of struggling more and more and more in greater intensity than they have in the past. Sure. Yeah, I think that's I think it's a good point and I I like the the way you depict the serpents. I think it's <laughs> uh, that's absolutely right. Is uh, and I think and, and I'm and I'm glad you read the book like that because I mean, you know, there's a sort of one reading the book which is sort of it's it's sort of just merely denouncing populism and praising expertise but in some ways I'm trying to kind of trying to clarify the fact that we we can't simply make that choice in quite quite such simple terms because we need aspects of of, of what uh, a sort of sentimental or maybe that's not the best term but a sort of clearly an emotional aspect there's a clearly an emotional aspect of politics that is never going to go away and nor should it but I think you're right I think the question is I suppose how do they how do they what would a synthesis look like now the I suppose one thing that's happened in the in the West over the last 25, 30 years in particular is that elements of the of the military the project of military intelligence gathering and 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 real time information processing have entered the civilian economy via Silicon Valley and you know some of that is for the purposes of you know Mark Zuckerberg trying to connect up the world or various forms of sort of cloud computing uh, capacities which allow us to or, or sort of you know the sort of algorithmic analysis of of everyday life that we now take for granted as as being possible and the capacity to sort of take decisions in a, in a kind of real time fashion or to automate decisions and you see that sort of ideas of kind of smart cities and that sort of thing that is controversial because you know it brings a lot of surveillance capacities into the private sector into businesses it generates these kind of tech giants that attract a lot of controversy and there are books like uh, Sushana Zuboff's Surveillance Capital which have which have, have criticized that and so on but it's not the most frightening thing because the most frightening thing would be a wholesale synthesis of the sovereign state with those capacities and that is more like what you would see with something like the Chinese social credit scoring mm. system that has uh, uh, that people are 
um, you know, is a sort of dystopian vision of where the sovereign state and the police state integrates the capacities for that level of, uh, of, of minute algorithmic analysis of social life, integrating things like facial recognition and so on. Now, that would be one way which those two serpents in some way sort of come together, is that the, is, is that the state, which in the, which in the Western tradition has, has uh, at least paid lip service to a certain liberal vision, which is that its foundations are legal, that is, it is it requires some kind of constitutional legitimacy in order for its authority to be derived. But in a non-liberal tradition, the state, which includes the you know nationalist visions of the likes of Viktor Orban and, and, and so on, and various exa- moments of nationalism in in, um, in in the West, the state derives its authority more from the purely from the capacity to to, to protect the people against enemies and to eliminate sort of alien forces in various ways, and of course that in its extreme version becomes fascism. Now I think that's the that's the the, the question is clearly the likes of Amazon are coming out of this crisis ext- with with even more power than they went in, which is almost hard to fathom given how much power they had when they went in, and the relationship between the likes of Amazon and the state in the United States has been growing more and more proximate over recent years anyway, in particularly uh, the work that Amazon does for the for the Pentagon and, and so on. Then you get these companies like Peter Thiel's Palantir, which is seeking, you know, sweeping up uh, public sector contracts for various forms of of, of, of um, algorithmic analysis of of data. And but Palantir is controversial because a lot of its techniques and its its know how was was gained during uh, the war on terror, with uh, various forms of um, counterinsurgency strategic uh, analysis, and, uh, and in that sense, it brings techniques from the battlefield directly into areas of policing and and civilian life. So I think that I suppose the danger is that the boundaries between the military and the civil, the economic and the political, start to become eroded by a crisis like this. Now. In that sense, the question is, what what would liberals do instead? And I mean, there is, I think you're right, certainly quite an outspoken celebration of those sources of, of, of independent scientific authority that are actually, you know, we are relying on right now. If you go and politicise the hell out of universities, you're not going to get the sort, you're not going to get a vaccine by, by, by sort of, you know, heavy handed political intervention in science. Will, my, my, my final question is, is really to try and take this back to us as all all poor, confused, you know, walking sacks of carbon around this world, you know, I mean, so we're all kind of products of of, of these two serpents, aren't we? We're, we're, we're all partly enlightenment beings, I suppose, to a greater or later extent, and we're all partly creatures of, of some form of collective feeling and even nationalism. As, as, as we all navigate as best as we can our time through this pandemic and then beyond it, Kind of what, what would you what would you say is the are the kind of signposts of the book for us? I mean, is it is it too, you know, is is the lesson here that we need to keep a balance between these two serpents and and to know that we're products of both and not to let either one of them really capture our society or or even ourselves? I, I think that's right. I mean, I think that that that's a sort of um, slightly kind of you know it might sound like fence sitting, um, but I think that there is that that's the the book is not. A, a kind of Stephen Pinker-esque kind of defence of, of science against against everything else. I think that the, the question is partly how does progress 
what does progress offer to humanity? I mean, this is a fairly <laughs> a huge question. But I think that one of the things to go back to something I was saying earlier is that one way in which modern science achieves a kind of intimacy and, a, and, and an emotional contact with people is via the mediation of the medical profession. It struck me for throughout the whole kind of Brexit kind of chaos of the sort of 2016 to 2020 period, I kept thinking all, you know, what Remain needs at this moment is it needs a really good NHS consultant who can stand up as the face of um, a kind of form of liberal expert authority, uh, but who is able to speak a language that doesn't immediately seem kind of alien and overeducated and patronising and distant because NHS consultants, in some ways, are the sort of pinnacle of the type of authority that that both these these sort of both these serpents are sort of winding their way towards. Now, I think that one thing which is is what other forms of authority might there be which are like that? And I, I've actually I read a, a paper that was published by a, a centre I'm part of called Cusp on the idea of a green populism, which kind of built on this point of trying to say, well, what would it mean? for environmentalism to, rather than to be... I mean, I'm not saying, I'm, I'm sure I'm not the first person to make this point. I'm not suggesting that environmentalism is is a sort of technocratic or, or scientific project, although in some respects it kind of has to be right now because climate change is the most sort of abstract, most global, most sort of statistically observable um, uh, uh, problem that, that, that we have. Uh, but the, in some ways, the part of the problem of something like climate change is how to bring the problem up close to people and how to make it something which people care about people that, that resisting climate change becomes something that people can mobilize around and that they can feel strongly about in ways that actually allows them to express their care for for one another and someone like alexandria ocasio-cortez in the states i mean she's given some wonderful speeches in the u.s senate about how you know talking about environmental issues green issues talking about that this is there's nothing elitist because of course in, in in the American politics if you care about the environment you're called a liberal elitist. She says you know there are kids in the Bronx who have got lung problems thanks to pollution. That's not elitist. There are farmers who've lost their livelihoods in Idaho because of you know flooding. That's not elitist. You know that the, the that there is a need to try and bring the different communities together. But of course it's not just the Greens or the left or the Liberals who want to do some of that. And those on the right and the far right will also have their own answers to that. So in some ways, this is the terrain that politics gets fought in. Well, taking us on a journey from Hobbes Leviathan through Napoleon to Brexit and then the pandemic, this has been Will Davis, Professor of Political Economy at Goldsmiths and author of Nervous States, How Feeling Took Over the World. Will, thank you very, very much. Great. Thanks very much, Carl. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. 
Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hold up. 